A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 12th of June. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Dr Kat Arney. Now this week we're asking, what do microbes do for us? It's a fact that there are up to 50 times more bugs living in each of us than there are human cells in the entire body. And based on recent headlines, you might think that these bacteria are only bad news. Some are, but many make us much healthier, including lending us their genetic know-how so that we can fend off infections and get the most out of the food we eat. But how do they do it? Stay with us to find out. We'll also meet the scientists trying to turn a stomach bug into an edible flu vaccine with some ups and downs of stomach contents. We're gearing up now for clinical trials. We are kind of getting back into humans. And so if you see somebody outside my hospital throwing up, they might not actually be a patient. They might be somebody in one of my research studies because we are currently dosing people with these helicobacters, trying to find the right one. You rather them than me. The Nobel Prize winner Barry Marshall will be talking to us later. Plus, news of how the building blocks of life arrived on Earth from space and the reason why smoking may make people stay thin. So, if you have any questions for us, here's how you can get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. That's thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani, and let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science stories and life coming from outer space, Kat. Absolutely. Regular listeners may remember that back in March we covered a story in which US researchers discovered that the simple molecules needed to make amino acids, those are the building blocks of proteins, may have hitched a ride to Earth on meteorites. Now researchers working on fragments of a large meteorite that exploded over Lake Targish in Canada back in the year 2000 have found more evidence that the molecules of life may have come from space. Led by Canadian researcher Dr Chris Hurd and publishing their results in the journal Science this week, the team think that some of the smallest molecules need to build proteins formed out in space in the swirling mess of forming planets and stars more than four billion years ago. But that's not all. The new results suggest that some of this material got swept up into large asteroids and then modified through chemical reactions with water inside the asteroids to create more complex chemicals. Then chunks of these asteroids broke off and went shooting through space, depositing these vital chemicals on Earth and possibly many other planets too. So what did these researchers actually do? 
Well, they carried out detailed analysis on four pieces from the meteorite that had fallen in different places on the lake, and they found evidence of many organic chemicals that are needed to make these building blocks of life, including simple amino acids, which are needed to build proteins. Now, their results suggest that the organic chemicals in the asteroid formed when dust got mixed with ice out in deep space and then got heated up by radioactivity. Now, this melted some of the ice, making liquid water that seeped through the asteroid, causing reactions that produced the chemicals needed to kickstart life when they fell to Earth. And so what does this tell us about how life could have evolved Certainly on this planet, but maybe on other ones as well. Well, intriguingly, the team's results show that the levels of organic chemicals may vary widely, even within the same meteorite. They found different levels of these chemicals in in these different bits from the same thing. And from what we know about biochemical reactions, it's likely that there's a pretty small range of concentrations at which these chemicals can actually usefully kick off the processes that lead to the development of more complex molecules and ultimately to living organisms. So while it's looking more likely that the ingredients for life may have been delivered from space, we also need to look at many more different samples from other meteorites to see what kinds of amounts of these chemicals are actually being dropped on the planet and whether they would be the right amount to get life going. So they analyse the meteorite. You can see these various chemicals in there which seem to suggest that that could be a source of those chemicals on the early Earth. How do we know, though, that that meteorite wasn't contaminated by those chemicals getting into it after it had landed or on its way in? Well, that's a really good question because that's been a problem with these kind of studies for a long time. People pick up these rocks and they're already, you know, covered in muck from the Earth. But unlike most of the other meteorite strikes that have hit the planet, this one hit a sub-zero temperature frozen lake. And local people were very careful to gather the meteorite samples very quickly after the meteorite hit and then kept them frozen, helping to reduce the chances of contamination and degradation of these chemicals. Now, the scientists think that the samples from the lake are the cleanest ones we've got and almost as good as going up into space and sampling asteroids directly. But there are plans underway to send a spacecraft up to go and sample some material from asteroids. So hopefully some more exciting answers coming our way soon. Genius, that's fantastic. Thank you, Kat. Now, they say there's no smoke without fire. Uh, Well, this week, scientists have got to the bottom of the claim by people who smoke that when they smoke, they have a lower appetite, and also people who quit smoking say that they put on a lot of weight, having stopped smoking. This has been suspected as being down to nicotine, partly because if you dose experimental animals with nicotine, they do lose weight. But... The actual molecular clockwork going on in the brain, the pathways that subserve that effect, has never actually been known until now because a group of researchers at Yale in America, this is Jan Miner and his colleagues, have got a paper in Science this week where they have discovered what those pathways are. Now, they did this in quite an ingenious way. So they started with experimental mice and they used a, a family of drugs which mimic the action of nicotine in the brain but they only bind or work in specific subsets of nerve cells in the brain. And one of the agents, a drug called cytosine, was capable of directly mimicking this appetite-depressing effect of nicotine in some experimental mice. And one of the regions where this cytosine drug works is in a part of the brain's hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus at the bottom of the brain contains a number of nerve clusters, some of which are directly linked to how hungry you feel and going out and getting food. They actually make you go and eat So what the researchers then said, well, let's have a look in some of these regions and see how they are actually influencing or being influenced by nicotine and feeding behaviour. So then they tracked down a region called the arcuate nucleus, 
And a population of cells in there called POMC cells, that stands for pro-opiomelanocortin, that's what the cells make. And they found that if they uh, put some cells in a dish and added nicotine to them, that they would become strongly active, they would produce lots and lots of bursts of activity and secrete lots of this pro-opiomelanocortin signal. And this they would squirt, for want of a better word, into an adjacent region of the hypothalamus called the paraventricular nucleus, which is also concerned with feeding behaviour. And... When you look in that region, you find that this particular chemical turns off the activity of nerve cells there. So putting all that together, it looks like what's going on is that when people smoke, nicotine binds to certain receptors, chemical docking stations, on cells in the hypothalamus. It activates those cells which squirt an appetite-suppressing chemical into the parts of the brain that are concerned with feeling hungry and wanting to put food into yourself. This depresses the activity of that region. So if you then stop smoking, rather like someone who's had their foot on a spring for a long time and suddenly removes the spring, it pings up, right? The part of the brain that's been suppressed by this nicotine signal for a long time suddenly bursts in activity and it makes you feel very much more hungry. And to actually quote from the paper, as the researchers say... Understanding this, whilst it's academically sensed, uh, sort of useful in itself, could be useful in producing new drugs that are designed to prevent weight gain following smoking cessation, which would be nice, but more importantly, also to tackle obesity and its related metabolic disorders. In other words, we could use our understanding of why people don't want to eat when they smoke in order to usefully suppress energy intake in people who may be carrying a bit too much weight or maybe have diabetes as a complication. Good stuff. Mmm, pro-opiomelanocortin. Tasty. Um, also this week, scientists have shown that the adult heart contains stem cells called epicardial stem cells that can be triggered by a signal called thymosin beta-4 to produce new muscle cells if part of the heart is damaged. Now, this week, Chris spoke with the paper's author, Professor Paul Riley from UCL. The problem we were trying to address was the fact that the adult human heart is unable to repair itself following a heart attack and following injury. So we were keen to exploit the fact that there is a cell type in the adult heart that is also found during development, so when the heart is actually forming during pregnancy, to try and recapture some of the potential of these cells during the building of the heart to actually mend and repair the heart in the adult. So sort of recapitulate the embryonic state in the disease state so that the, the damaged bit does regrow. That's right. We're not the first group to describe the potential for stem cells that might be existing in the heart but the cells that have previously been described are very rare and in fact they don't become heart muscle or blood vessel cells very readily and if they do they're very immature so they're not really functional. What we wanted to do was to find a much more tractable or better target cell type and the cell type we chose contribute to both the blood vessel development and also to muscle cells of the developing heart. And these cells are called epicardial cells. And they're there in the adult, so they could be potentially recruited in an injury. That's right. They line the outside of the muscle of the heart in the adult, and they're thought to have basically stopped doing what they need to do because they've contributed during development, and then their sort of activity, if you like, is switched off. And so the key thing from our point of view is to try and reactivate that program and to try and get those cells to turn the clock back and behave more like they do in the embryo. And how did you actually approach that? We already knew from some previous work that a very important protein called thymosin beta-4, if that was lost in function in mouse hearts, the heart failed to form properly and didn't make 
the coronary blood vessels and the defect was at the level of these embryonic epicardial cells. So what we then did was we took a huge leap of faith where we added thymosin beta-4 back to adult cells in preparations to try and see if thymosin beta-4 was both necessary during development but also sufficient to activate the adult cell type and fortunately for us thymosin beta-4 proved very good at uh, making these cells divide, migrate, and become, in this instance, smooth muscle cells and um, some fibroblast cells and also some endothelial cells. And these are key cell types of both the coronary vessels and also the sort of skeleton of the heart. What we didn't know at the time was whether or not they had any potential to make heart muscle, and that's been the nature of this particular study. What did you actually do to try and track what these cells could do in the context of an injury? This study um, was really based on two findings back in 2008 that said that the embryonic epicardial cells could also contribute to the muscle of the heart. And in that study, one of the groups used a transgenic mouse. So this mouse was driving a green fluorescent protein in the epicardial cells during heart development by virtue of one of the embryonic genes that's expressed. This is switched off in the adults. So we reasoned that if we're reactivating an embryonic potential in these adult cells, maybe we're also really restoring embryonic gene expression. So we took that mouse and added thymosin beta-4 for a number of days, and we were able to switch on this green label of the adult cells. So we, what we've done then is we've reactivated an embryonic gene program, and we were able to watch what those cells did in response to an injury where we induced a heart attack in the mice. And in this instance, we were able to observe a proportion of them becoming new heart muscle. And there's no way that these glowing green cells could have come from any other source? Well, that's, that is actually a, a really good question. In fact, it's a question posed to us by the reviewers of the, of the study that was published in Nature. And the key point there was that we may have just been looking at existing muscle cells that had turned on the green fluorescent protein, that had just switched on the gene program in existing heart cells. And so what we had to do, actually, to disprove that completely... Um, was to do cell, cell transplantation experiments. So we took cells that were labelled from a donor animal that had undergone this thymosin beta-4 treatment and then injury and put them into a non-transgenic, unlabeled host mouse. And that mouse had also undergone um, priming with thymosin beta-4 and injury. So we put green cells into, if you like, a white background within the heart and we were able to watch these cells then become heart muscle. So the bottom line here is that you've identified there is a population of cells, albeit they're there in small numbers. You can turn them on and they can locate the right place to go to and turn into the right sorts of cells to repair damage without people having to add new cells, which has up until now been the dogma. That's correct. So the key point was, yes, resident cells do exist in the heart that can be reactivated. And when they do that, they can repair significantly the damaged area and so we were also able to assess that functionally as well and assess heart function. And that was done using magnetic resonance imaging studies where we showed that the heart function as a result of this sort of treatment and so on was improved by about 25%. Which is a huge improvement and something no one even thought was feasible. That was Paul Riley from UCL. And the next step in that research will be to produce an artificial form of thymosin beta-4, which is the agent that activates those stem cells. Cap.
And now to a new approach to tackling deafness. Researchers at the University of Essex have designed a new software system that's helping them to develop a radical new type of hearing aid, tailor-made to an individual's needs. Here's Jane Reck. Hearing aids work on the general principle that if you're finding it hard to hear something, you simply turn the volume up. Fine if you're talking to one person in a quiet room, but if you're in a noisy environment, then everything is amplified. Now unique computer modelling techniques combined with new ways of carrying out hearing tests are revolutionising the way that hearing loss and impairment is diagnosed and treated. Professor Ray Medis is leading the work at the University of Essex. Hearing consists of a number of stages between the sound arriving at the ear and then the signal going up to the brain. And the computer model tries to represent each one of these stages separately. The tests that we use involve two measurements. One concerns tuning and the other one concerns compression. Tuning refers to the situation where you can hear one sound and tune out background sounds. It's a bit like a radio where you can tune into one radio station but you don't want interference from another station. Now with normal hearing, this tuning takes place naturally. So one of our tests focuses on that particular problem. Compression is concerned with how intrusive other sounds are when they become louder. So normally we can tune out another sound if it's quiet, but as it increases in intensity, then we have more difficulty in tuning it out. A person with hearing loss often has a particular difficulty in tuning out irrelevant sounds. And so our compression measure is particularly concerned with increasing the intensity of a sound and then noticing how that comes to make it difficult to listen to a particular focal sound. Strange as it may seem, it was the art of dressmaking that inspired Ray and his team to take this tailor-made approach to the diagnosis and treatment of hearing impairment. When generating a computer model for a patient with hearing loss, we always start off with a normal model, and we try and make a single adjustment which refers to the particular pathology which we feel is causing the problem for that particular patient. When you have a dress made, the tailor measures your body size, then changes the shape of the dummy to represent your body size, and then cuts and sews the clothing so that it fits the dummy. And the reasonable expectation is that when the customer comes back, the clothing will fit perfectly. Now, we believed that we could do the same thing with hearing impairment. We already have a model of normal hearing, so by making certain adjustments, we could make the dummy simulate impaired hearing. And the idea was we could then use that dummy to fit the hearing aid, so we would adjust the hearing aid so that we got the best possible output from the impaired hearing dummy. Our hope is that we will be able to use the hearing dummy to make these adjustments before the hearing aid is supplied to the patient. In other words, the hearing aid should be fitted to the dummy just like a dress will be fitted to a tailor's dummy and then when the patient comes back, the aid should be perfectly suited to their particular needs.
Supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, this cutting-edge work has also led to a prototype design for a new type of hearing aid. Because our primary interest was in developing computer models, we came to realise that hearing aids respond differently to sounds compared to a normal hearing individual. So it seemed to us that we could build a hearing aid that simulated normal human hearing. So it compressed the sound in the same way, tuned the sound in the same way, and dealt with variations in level in the same way. So we have designed a new type of hearing aid which uses something called instantaneous compression. Currently in hearing aids, uh, sound is compressed, but it takes a little while for the compressor to respond to the sound levels, and this gives rise to some complications. But by simulating normal human hearing, we've been able to produce instantaneous compression without the distortion which everybody used to believe was an unavoidable accompaniment of instantaneous compression. So a number of aspects of this research are cutting edge. The research is a world first in a number of respects. First of all, uh, this will be the first model to represent a number of different kinds of hearing impairment. It is also the first attempt anybody has made to go through the complete cycle, that is measuring the hearing loss, designing the hearing dummy, adjusting the hearing aid using the hearing dummy, and then modifying the hearing aid to suit the patient. So it's the first time anybody has attempted to go through that complete cycle. The new approach has simplified the complicated laboratory testing process, significantly cutting down on the time it takes and the number of trials involved, along with the level of expertise required. Within four years, we could see this system of testing in widespread use, along with the new type of hearing aid. That was Jane Reck from the EPSRC, and there's an audio slideshow on this research on YouTube. You can find it by typing an EPSRC video into YouTube's search engine. Thank you, Kat. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've covered this week, there's more info and the references online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Now, still to come, we'll be exploring the role that bacteria play in helping to keep us healthy. But first, the benefits of planting trees, from improving air quality to providing a habitat for wildlife, are well known. But there's another, much loftier effect. Small particles released by tree leaves can also cause clouds to form. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met Catherine Scott from the University of Leeds Institute of Climate and Atmospheric Science. During the life of a tree, it will take in a certain amount of carbon from the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide. It does that as part of photosynthesis when it also releases oxygen back into the atmosphere. But what we're interested in looking at are other gases that trees release into the atmosphere. So if you're walking through a forest, um, you can smell a kind of piney odour. And that's because of these other compounds, volatile organic compounds. And they're things like isoprene and monoterpenes. What in particular are you interested in about them? These compounds are incredibly important because when they're released into the atmosphere, they undergo reactions with a class of compounds called oxidants, and that's things like ozone. Following those reactions, they're able to form tiny particles in the atmosphere via a number of different mechanisms that scientists are still trying to get a clear idea about, but we know that that happens. 
So it's the impact on the climate of these particles that we're really interested in looking at. So what role do these particles play then? Well, we know that they have two main effects. Firstly, while they're present in the atmosphere, they can kind of interact with incoming solar radiation, the energy from the sun essentially, and uh, kind of perturb its path so that it doesn't make it to the Earth's surface and um, it scatters it. But additionally, and what we're most interested in looking at here, are the role that these particles play brightening the clouds that are above the forests. And they do this because um, when they're in the atmosphere, they grow and they get to a certain size where they're able to form cloud droplets. And the more of these droplets that there are in a cloud, the whiter and brighter that it becomes. And that means that it will reflect away more of uh, the incoming solar radiation. That's amazing. So if you've got an area where you've got a lot of trees in a forest and they're producing these volatile organic compounds which produces particles, you're likely to see then brighter, whiter clouds above them. It's sort of they're producing their own clouds then, aren't they, or brighter, whiter, fluffier clouds? Essentially, yes. I mean, there's a number of other processes that govern the actual formation of the clouds. But what we're interested in looking at is um, just how significant the impact of these particular particles are on the clouds, how much of that effect we can credit to the original compounds that are released by the trees, essentially. What would a brighter, whiter cloud then do for a forest? Because normally nature has a way of, you know, what's in it for them sort of thing. There's normally a beneficial effect for the forest, perhaps, but maybe not necessarily on our climate, or or is it beneficial to both the climate and the forest? Um, Well, we think that these particles are beneficial to the forest because of the way that they scatter the radiation as it comes in. It's scattered into different directions. It means that more of it is available for the leaves of the trees to use, and that's something that we think is really quite important. As for the climate, the problem that we've got at the moment with climate change is that there's an imbalance, really, in between the amount of solar energy that's coming into the Earth system and the amount of energy that's allowed to escape from the Earth's system um, through the atmosphere. And the more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere, the less of this radiation that's allowed to escape. So the main way that we're trying to address this is by reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, allowing more of the radiation to escape. But something else that we can do is try and reflect away more of the sun's radiation so that less of it gets in in the first place. And that's uh, another way that we can address this energy imbalance. Because uh, a whiter cloud will reflect more solar radiation. Yes, essentially. So what we're trying to do is quantify this effect using computer simulations so that we can understand exactly the impact that forests are having on the Earth system at the moment. That was Catherine Scott from the University of Leeds chatting to Sue Nelson about the impact of forests on fluffy white clouds and the climate. And you can find more Planet Earth online resources at thenakedscientist.com slash planetearth. It's amazing that, isn't it, Kat? And the really interesting thing is that we're talking about bacteria this week. They'll be under the microscope shortly uh, because we'll be finding out how the microbial world inside you and specifically the bacteria in your guts can help to keep you healthy by lending you the benefit of their biochemical know-how. But also bacteria make clouds. Pseudomonas syringae, which live on plant leaves, get blown up into the atmosphere and they're capable of triggering the formation of ice crystals at much higher temperatures than should happen normally around the bug. So it turns itself into an artificial snowflake, effectively. Snow comes down, turns into rain on the way down, lands on another plant somewhere else, starts the process all over again. So these bacteria are hitching a ride in the clouds that they create. Absolutely incredible. If you have any questions for us on microbiology and the the impact of bugs on your health, tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page, which is thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or you can drop us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com.
Now, you can't turn on the telly without seeing some woman drinking yoghurt and then dancing round for all that she's worth. We're very familiar with the idea of friendly bacteria and foods, drinks and supplements that promote healthy gut flora can be found in all the supermarkets. But what is all this about? What are friendly bacteria? How are they different from bad bacteria? And what do they actually do? Now, to find out, we're joined by Dr Karen Scott from Aberdeen University. Hi, Karen. Hello. Thanks for coming on The Naked Scientist. No problem. Now, let's get bacterial with this. Tell us about the sort of bacteria that are in our gut. What are they? What are they doing there? And how did they get there? Well, there's actually a, a large number of bacteria in the human gut. In fact, we could almost be said to be carrying around more bacteria in our bodies than there are actually human cells. And these bacteria are very important in helping us to digest the food that we eat all the time. And where, where do they actually come from? Are we born with these bugs in us? Newborn babies are colonised as they're born, effectively. So although we're, our guts are actually sterile when babies are in the womb, as soon as they're born, they start to pick up bacteria from their mothers or from the environment, and we rapidly become colonised by our gut bacteria. Now, the bacteria that are in an infant consuming milk are actually different from those that are in a developed adult and it's around the time of weaning when the types of bacteria that are present start to change because you, the bacteria composition depends very much on the food that we eat. And by the time a child is aged, say, two, three, four, they probably have a very similar gut bacteria to an adult. Now, I'm sure any parents listening will be aware that their child's digestion changes quite significantly at that kind of age. But what are these bacteria actually doing for us in our guts? Um, so presumably you're talking about the kind of the good bacteria that are helping yeah. us out. Yeah, I mean, that's I should have said that. The, the bacteria that we hear a lot about in the news are the bad bacteria, the pathogen, pathogenic bacteria. The vast majority of bacteria that live in our gut are very good for us and they're actually very important to maintain a healthy gut. And what they do when they're there is when we eat much of the foods that we actually eat, we are unable to digest them ourselves. We don't have the enzymes that are required to degrade much of this food material. And when it reaches the colon, say plant fibres, for example, haven't been digested at all higher up in the gastrointestinal tract. And we're completely dependent on our bacteria in our colon to digest these fibres for us and gain some energy from them. So some of the questions that, that this throws up to me is how much of our of our energy is, is actually coming from bacteria? It's thought that about 10% of our energy might come from these gut bacteria. But that's not to say that the bacteria are making us fat because the energy is in the forms of what, what we call, a lot of it's in the forms of short-chain fatty acids because these bacteria are carrying out fermentation reactions and these acids that they produce are actually extremely essential for the health of the colon. One of the acids in particular, a compound called butyrate, is, very, is protective against colon cancer and in general having a slightly acidic colon actually prevents the growth of the pathogenic bacteria like the E. coli, for example, because these bacteria can't grow under acidic conditions. So by maintaining the fermentation that happens by your good bacteria, you can keep out the bad guys that you don't really want in there.
So what sort of foods are we talking about, sort of fruit and veg and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's plant material, carbohydrates, resistant starches, all these sort of materials reach the colon and are digested by the bacteria that are there. And you can actually manipulate the composition of your gut bacteria, if you want, by changing your diet. And you can do this for better or for worse, actually, depending on which way you change it, really. Now, um, I, I live with, with three guys and I'm well aware of the effects of, for example, when they eat things like beans on their gut activities. I mean, so uh, most of the, the gas that we produce in our guts is that down to the bacteria. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these short-chain fatty acids, for example, are volatile compounds and they're pretty smelly, really. And some of the gases that are produced are released in either flatulence or oral um, belching. But... That's not to say it's a bad thing. And what happens, which is very interesting, is that some of the population are have certain bacteria that make smellier farts, if you want, whereas other people have a different type of bacteria and they don't tend to be so smelly. So they might be producing just as much gas, but you just can't detect it quite the same. I'd say, I'd say that was clearly the female half, obviously. Um, so you mentioned that we can change uh, we can change the composition of our back, uh, gut bacteria, so switch it from being um, some nasty ones to being more good bacteria. Yeah. And we're bombarded with these ideas that you just drink this little yoghurt drink and that's going to give you all the stuff for your friendly bacteria. What's in these yoghurt drinks and do people actually need them? Are they doing us any good? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, the yoghurt drinks actually contain a bacteria themselves so when you consume those yogurt drinks the manufacturers are actually giving you their bacterium and all these yogurts have slightly different bacteria in them because they're all patented and each manufacturer has a slightly different bacterium that they put in their drinks now these bacteria are all being categorized and they're all very safe they're not going to do you any harm but in general terms you're putting say one pot of yogurt might contain around, say, 100 million bacteria, and you're putting them in your gut up against a million million bacteria. So they really are outnumbered. And I think, in my opinion, anyway, it's much better to try and encourage the growth of the bacteria that are already there. So your normal, healthy bacteria. And you can do that by increasing the intake of carbohydrates, fibre. But the other way that um, food companies are trying to do this is by introducing what they call prebiotics. The yoghurt stuff, the bacteria that are in yoghurt are called probiotics. Prebiotics are actually carbohydrate-like compounds that we, again, we can't digest. They go straight through to our gut and our bacteria that are always there can grow on these prebiotics. And they're sort of targeted to help the growth of the good bacteria in our guts. So it's pretty obvious that these bacteria, you know, we've evolved to have them and they're helping us digest our food and keep us healthy. Mm. Um, do most people need help with their gut bacteria? I think as long as, as long as you consume a generally healthy diet and a varied diet, because these, all the, there are many, many different types of bacteria in the gut, say that there are over 500 different species of bacteria, and they all have slightly different eating habits, if you want. So as long as you have a, gen a general good, healthy diet, then yes, your, your gut bacteria will be functioning adequately. But sometimes 
you may inadvertently cause a shift in your bacteria and you may you may then need a little help to re-establish a good bacterial profile and that's that's when um, these probiotic products are actually quite good for you and I'm talking probably antibiotics is the the main thing really there. So really, really briefly, and we've started to hear some stories lately on The Naked Scientists about how um, our gut bacteria may be having a, a much bigger impact, say, on our immune system. And do you think that this kind of area is going to become much more important in the future? I mean, it's certainly been established that in a very early life, your immune system is sort of primed by your gut bacteria. So the immune system is in contact with our normal gut bacteria all the time and it's constantly sampling these bacteria and it knows not to react to them. So it knows not to get inflamed and cause a very big immune response to our normal bacteria. And that's how it knows when there's one that's not, if it encounters something it's not used to, then it can react to that. And that we need that to happen in order to stop getting sick. And this happens from very early life. And part of the hygiene, what's called the hygiene hypothesis is perhaps that if you try to stay too clean, then you don't get this constant priming of your immune system. And that in some cases, that may mean that you overreact to what should not normally cause a bad reaction. Thanks very much for that, Karen. That is Dr. Karen Scott from the Microbial Ecology Group at the University of Aberdeen. Karen's actually going to be with us for the rest of the programme, so if you have any questions for her, do get in touch. Tweet at Naked Scientists. In 2005, two Australian researchers, Rob Warren and Barry Marshall, won the Nobel Prize for their discovery in the 1980s of the bacterium Helicobacter pylori, which causes ulcers and stomach cancers in some of the people who carry it. Compared with the past, though, fewer people today actually carry it, but many of those that do harbour the bug without any apparent harm, which has taken Barry in an entirely new direction since. If everyone in the world used to have it until the last hundred years, maybe it was doing something useful for humans. Well, when humans didn't have much acid secretion, we didn't have much protein in our diet, Stone Age, we probably had malnutrition half the time, then Helicobacter really couldn't do much because... We didn't have enough acid to develop ulcers and we didn't live long enough to get cancer. So helicobacter in that situation was almost symbiotic. But what was it there for? So we still don't know. However, in, in the 20th century, we're talking about the clean and hygienic theory of why people get so much asthma, allergies, things like that. We're all too clean. Maybe the kids should be out in the backyard eating dirty stuff, dirt and what have you. So uh, Helicobacter, if you have it, it puts you more back into the 19th century hygiene mode and there's a, some data that suggests that children with Helicobacter have less chance of, ca of having asthma or eczema, a 30% less risk. So you can trade an ulcer for asthma instead? Right, that's correct. But if we study helicobacter, maybe we can get the best of both worlds. You see, maybe we could have a helicobacter that didn't actually hurt you, but actually down-regulated the immune system. It was a useful treatment for something like asthma, whatever. So people starting to get very excited about helicobacter as uh, possibly a super probiotic. And my work is currently on that, like not so much probiotic, but more like using helicobacter as a vaccination 
because if you could use it as a vaccine delivery vehicle, and I can explain that in a minute, then you'd have a vaccine which people would drink and buy it in the supermarket or it'd just be a little capsule that they would get from the pharmacy and it would not require going to the doctor prescriptions, your poor little child having all these vaccinations when there's so many vaccinations these days, it's getting out of hand. So what are you actually trying to do? You're trying to produce, what, an attenuated form of H. pylori that won't trigger the ulcerogenic, the ulcer-provoking outcome, but will nonetheless confer what we think these positive benefits, this symbiotic benefit, could be from having an infection with the agent. That's correct. So we can see that most of the helicobacter that cause ulcers have got certain toxins in them. We can choose one that doesn't have the toxin, and we can, or we can choose strains from people who have had absolutely no symptoms all their life. And so we have collected these types of strains, so elderly people who never had a day's illness but had helicobacter. So we've got those strains. And we can then say, OK, well, let's clone in the DNA from flu virus, H1N1. So that takes maybe two weeks to do. Now we've got a helicobacter that doesn't hurt you, but it's got flu virus particles sticking out of its surface, So theoretically, if you now drink that one, your immune system will react against the flu virus and the helicobacter at the same time, and you should be vaccinated against the flu. So that would be great, because if you had a new flu pandemic, you could have 200 million doses of this type of product in eight weeks, and you wouldn't have to have a massive warehouse with 100 million pounds worth of vaccine, which was going to go out of date in 12 months, you have to throw it away, you would just have a little ampule of your vaccine strain ready for emergencies and you could easily scale that up. You just borrow one of the fermenters at Guinness factory (laughs) and you'd have a million uh, cans of it uh, in a week or so. So I'm pretty sure that that is where vaccination is going to go, you know, tricking the immune system into doing something it does naturally but do it without actually having to have an injection or the flu virus itself. So you'd foresee a big library of H. pylori's which present various microbial epitopes, antigens, which would then stimulate an immune response, albeit in the context of an H. pylori infection, but you could keep on super-dosing people with different strains with these different antigens in them to fulfil the normal requirements of uh, a vaccination repertoire that we'd give to kids. Hmm. So we'd, we'd have a helicobacter which doesn't make you sick and it only lasts for a few weeks or a month or so. So... That type of illness, you can imagine, is a bit like having dandruff in your stomach. That's the level of irritation you get, but it's enough to actually stimulate the immune system. The other thing about helicobacter, you could potentially put four or five different things on it, you see. You can put the flu virus on the flagella, you could put um, rubella on the inside, and you could put uh, whooping cough or pertussis on the back of it. So there are a lot of different places where we can construct a proper antigen and give it to somebody. So we're gearing up now for clinical trials. We are kind of getting back into humans. And so if you see somebody outside my hospital throwing up, they might not actually be a patient. They might be somebody in one of my research studies because we are currently dosing people with these helicobacters, trying to find the right one which is is going to be harmless but, but could potentially vaccinate you. Barry Marshall speaking with me at the QE2 Medical Centre in Perth in Western Australia. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Now often 
when we're talking about bacteria and how they can benefit us. This will involve growing them in big tanks called fermenters or bioreactors. But how do you make sure that the concentration of foodstuffs in every part of the tank is just right for the bugs to flourish and that there are no chemical corners in which waste can accumulate? Mira and Dave have been finding out more. For this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and I are exploring the field of fluid mechanics, forces and movements of fluids such as liquids and gases. But Dave, this is still quite a big area, so what are we focusing in on? Yes, fluid dynamics is a huge area ranging from aircraft to things which are a much smaller scale and actually things which you come across in everyday life. One of the actually very difficult bits of fluid mechanics is when you have more than one phase, so a solid and a liquid or two different types of liquid or solid liquids and gases all mixed together. And studying how these mix together and how they interact is very, very important on all sorts of scales not least when you're cooking or on a much larger industrial scale, doing chemical reactions or even biological reactions. To find out a bit more about this mixing process on an industrial scale biologically, we've come along to University College London this week to meet Martina Micheletti, who's a lecturer in biochemical engineering. Now, Martina, so your particular area is bioreactors. Yes, bioreactor basically refers to reactors in which drugs are actually produced by live organisms, for example, a microbial yeast or mammalian cell culture. They need the kind of a septic environment and a lot of sterilization issues. Essentially, it's a tank where you can grow lots and lots of cells which have been bred or engineered to produce a useful product, quite often a drug. Yes. So the kind of geometry that we use, the most common one, is a sort of cylindrical tank, as you said, and with a rotating impeller in the middle. The mixing is achieved by steering, and there is an impeller, which can be of different designs, rotating at a certain speed. So a bioreactor is essentially a vessel where you're trying to, say, culture cells. So what are you actually doing inside this, or, or what are the conditions inside it to allow these cells to culture and be happy? Definitely you need some sort of food, so nutrients, usually powders into an aqueous medium. But cells, in order to sort of live and grow, they do need oxygen. So we usually have inside the bioreactor, you usually have pre-filtered air inlet. Also, you know, live organisms have got required temperature and pH. Usually temperature can be 37 degrees and pH can be pH 7. So temperature and pH has to be controlled as well. I guess if you've got quite a big vat full of cells, a really major issue is to make sure all the cells are happy at the same time. Definitely. So what you need mixing for is, first of all, to actually maintain a suspension of cells so they don't sediment. You also need to mix the nutrients. So again, you know, this can be uptaken by the cells. So you've got kind of gases, you've got nutrients in there. All of this needs mixing for which you've got a propeller. So do you essentially just keep this going very fast to get things mixed? Well, you know, you would think so. However, there are a number of issues. Lots of these organisms are quite fragile. Mammalian cells, for example, they don't have a cell wall. So some impellers produce quite high shear rates, and that's kind of detrimental. So the shear is just the rate of change of velocity. So if you've got one side of the cell going a lot faster than the other side of the cell, it will get ripped apart. Yeah, when we take an individual cell inside a bioreactor, that's going to be subjected to different forces and therefore stresses. So how do you set about then monitoring the flow through the vessel and how things are mixing and the forces in there? 
What we really want to get is to have, for example, a flow pattern of the impellers as well as have quantify turbulence level and get also an idea of the sort of energy which is dissipated by the impeller. There are a number of techniques to do this. I would say that the most advanced one are laser-based. One of them is, for example, particle image velocimetry. So we've got a laser here which is pointing at essentially a scaled-down bioreactor vessel. It's about 15 centimetres in diameter um, and it's got a propeller going through the middle of it and a misty fluid really in that vessel. It's an image technique essentially that works with the um, seeding particles that follow the fluid. So the problem with seeing how the fluid is moving is that the fluid is transparent and you can't see it. So you've added seed particles which are very, very small and will move with the fluid Um, And so if you know where they're moving, you'll know how the fluid itself is moving. Exactly, yeah. So if I I can turn it on now and, uh, and show you. So you've set it going now, and this clicking sound that we can hear is the laser firing quite frequently at the vessel in front of us. This one is basically a high-power laser that is producing two pulses at an on-time interval. I set it at one millisecond from each other, and it's basically producing a light sheet inside uh, the bioreactor. So you're using a sheet rather than just illuminating the whole bioreactor, so you're only illuminating the particles in that sheet so you get a sort of two-dimensional picture. How does um, putting a sheet of light over this allow you to see the velocity of these seeded particles? There is a high-speed camera just in front of the bioreactor, which is focused exactly on the actual plane where the laser is firing. And the camera is going to actually take two images, and the camera is synchronised with the laser, so it's going to take the two images at the same time intervals as the laser pulses. The two images are then cross-correlated to actually find out the average space travels by a particle. But now on a computer screen here, we can see um, quite a close-up image of the propeller and these seeded particles moving around it. Based on the images that you see now, the computer is then able to actually get a lot of information about the velocity of each particle at that location and at that time. A bit like how a speed camera, it'll flash twice and look at how your car has moved in between. So you've then got to use a computer to work out how far these particles have moved. Yes, exactly. How are you then using this information, though, that you do know about the velocity of the particles? I'll give you an example. We found recently in this type of bioreactors that there were a lot, number of instabilities. Basically, we found the existence of a vortex processing around the impeller shaft at a known frequency. Now, by actually locating the feeding pipe, which is used in a bioreactor, for example, to feed glycerol to the cells when they need, etc., exactly inside the vortex, that would decrease the mixing time, the time needed to achieve a full mixing, by 50%, which is quite a lot of energy saved. And I guess also when it comes to the manufacture of, say, bioreactors, I mean, you've got a 15 centimetre diameter scaled vessel here, but then hopefully you'd be able to scale this up for the industrial level of pharmaceutical companies. Scale-up studies are something that are very sought after by industry. This is a two-litre vessel, but we go even lower down inside to a millilitre scale vessels. All this fluid dynamics information at small scale would allow you know, a pharma company, for example, to actually come and scale up the, the production of a drug from a two-litre scale to you know, a 200-litre possibly. That's University College London's Martina Micheletti with Dave and Mira. And if you want to take a closer look at that research, they've put together a video that you can see at nakedscientist.com slash engineering. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. 
And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Catania. And our guest this week is Dr Karen Scott, who's an expert in bacteria from Aberdeen University. Well, let's kick off with some questions we've got for you, Karen. Uh, Alan Scott, I presume not a relative of yours, says uh, on Facebook, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, do antibiotics kill good bacteria? If so, how much? And do we need to do anything to replace them after a course of antibiotics has been given and completed? Well, that's a that's a very good point, actually, because, yes, antibio- a lot of the antibiotics that are prescribed are indiscriminate and they will kill our good bacteria as well as the targeted bacteria that they're wanted to kill. So they do destroy your gut bacteria, and that's sometimes why when you take a course of antibiotics, you get an upset stomach, you get diarrhoea, etc. And the best way to try and avoid that is to take some of these probiotic yogurts whilst you're taking the course of antibiotics and possibly for a week or so afterwards, just to give your own bacteria a chance to recover. Because although a certain number of your own bacteria will get killed and that can cause the upset stomach, there are still enough left there that they will regenerate once the antibiotic pressure is removed. It's often said, though, that the spectrum of bugs that you have in your intestines is more unique to you than your own fingerprint is. So if antibiotics wipe out some of those bacteria, can you actually get back the very ones you had before or do you end up substituting some that are vaguely right but they're not exactly what you had previously? Generally, they do all come back because the... If you th- imagine the surface of the gut is like your fingers, it's like there are deep crypts and everything in there. So the bacteria find hiding places away from the antibiotics. So generally, most of them come back again. There are certain bacteria that seem to be particularly susceptible and can get lost. And one of them, for example, is a, a species called Oxalobacter. And if you don't have Oxalobacter, you're more likely to get kidney stones. And Oxalobacter can be eliminated forever with um, certain antibiotics. So avoid the rhubarb then. Cat. We've got a really quick one from Jay McDonald. He says, how can we see bacteria using our school microscopes? The best way to see them using a microscope is by staining them. You can buy some specific stains that will make the bacteria appear as pink or purple rods or cocci, depending on what bacterium it is. And then it's very easy to see them through a, a normal light microscope. Got one here, quite an interesting one from Bob, who says, how many calories do bacteria consume? How many calories does a bacterium actually in your gut use as a proportion of the food you eat? Yeah, we sort of covered this earlier. About 10% of our energy comes from bacteria. But the probably the important point of that is that the energy is in the form of these short-chain fatty acids that are actually very helpful to us. The bacteria produce the short-chain fatty acids that we then absorb and they're used by the gut epithelial cells to grow. So they're not actually going to be deposited in fat cells in our body or anything, but they're used to regenerate the lining of the gut. I did also find one quite nice reference. Um, Ross Society's uh, Proceedings uh, B, Anastasia Makarieva in 2005 asked, do bacteria breathe at the same rate as whales? And they found that bacterial cells do have the same metabolic rate as whale cells too. 20 to 22 watts per kilo. And as an interesting sideline, the human body has got about 10 to the 13 cells in it. So bacteria outnumber us 10 to 1, that's 10 to the 14 cells. And since a bacterial cell weighs 10 to the minus 12 grams per cell, that means that in the average person there's 100 grams of bacteria, which means that your bug load weighs almost as much as your kidneys, Cat. So clearly those gut bacteria having a whale of a time. Um, next question from Sammy Bingo on Twitter, who says, what are the most helpful microorganisms in a mammal's body? 
Well, I would say that the microorganisms in your gut are the most helpful, but then I would say that since I work on them. But in terms of specifics, then two of the main species that we are most interested in that are very helpful in producing butyrate, which is protective against colon cancer, are Roseburia and one that's called Fecalibacterium prisnitzii. And that last, the last one there that I mentioned is also been shown to not be present in people who have Crohn's disease. So there's currently a lot of work going on in various countries around the world to try and see if you can reintroduce that specific bacterium back into patients who have Crohn's disease, whether you can avoid or alleviate the symptoms. Because in people who have Crohn's, if you put them on astronaut food, so elemental diet, just the bare nutrients they need and nothing else, their Crohn's gets better. So what does that do to their bacteria then? I mean, that's a very severe treatment, I think, really. That would be sterile diet, I presume. There would be no bacteria in that astronaut diet. I don't think so. Um, the other yeah. point about it is that it's literally just nothing more than the nutrients you need mm -hmm. and uh, in no more excessive quantities than what you would yeah. want. And, and so it's all, it tastes awful, apparently, and yeah. it's very miserable to eat it. <laughs> it, it's, it has life-prolonging effects only because it makes you feel like you're living forever because yeah. life's going so slowly. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it imagine... does apparently make people's Crohn's disease regress completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really know about that, but I imagine that most of those nutrients will be being absorbed in the upper gastrointestinal tract so what you're almost trying to do there is starve the bacteria in your colon and reduce the numbers of them so that they no longer inflame the cell wall of the colon because that's what causes Crohn's disease it's an inflammation of the colon so if you try to stop or try to eliminate the bacteria that are normally present there by starving them by only feeding the person food that's all absorbed higher up in the gastrointestinal tract then that might be part of the reason that works. Andrew Reitermeyer says, living as I do, and this is on Facebook, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, uh, he lives in Lower Saxony where the EHEC outbreak, mm -hmm. enterohemorrhagic E. coli outbreak, was centred. My question is, is there a reliable way to make salad vegetables safe without cooking them? I guess because cooked lettuce wouldn't taste so good, would it? Uh, mm -hmm. He says, for example, by soaking them in alcohol or the use of an antimicrobial species of some kind. Yeah, I can see why he's concerned. A good question. I mean, the, the thing, the really important thing about the EHEC is that very, very few bacteria, if your food is contaminated, then you basically have to bleach it to get rid of them in order to make it really safe. And you really don't want to do that because the toxins in the bleach would be harmful on themselves. Um, washing it as thoroughly as possible and... Well, hoping, I suppose, but I mean, that's a really difficult question because, as you say, you can't cook salad vegetables and you don't necessarily not want to eat them because the chances of them being contaminated, if as long as they're not from a, a source where the contamination has been found, is actually quite low. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Because when people make motorway service station sandwiches and things like that, the salad in these pre-prepared sandwiches has already been washed in a, in a weak solution of bleach, hasn't yeah. it? And I guess the problem with these bugs is that if they get into small imperfections in the surfaces of the vegetables, there are little nooks and crannies there, the bugs can lurk, and the infectious dose is so low with just a handful of organisms at most that uh, actually unless you peel it, boil it or leave it, then you're pretty likely to get it. That, I mean, that's exactly right, yeah. I mean, even washing them in a weak bleach, as you say, they'll be lurking. If they're there, they can lurk right down in bits that will 
will not be um, penetrated by the bleach and you still eat them. And yet six to ten will actually cause an infection of these particular bacteria. Now, I've got one last question for you, Karen, um, which is a personal question because I was asked by a, a colleague of mine the other day who's pregnant, she's six months pregnant, she had to have a caesarean during her first pregnancy um, for various complicated reasons. And so now she's pregnant again, the staff at the hospital are saying that she can quite safely go for a normal delivery. She doesn't know whether she should have a caesarean or not, but I was saying that there might be a microbiological impact of having a caesarean because when babies are born that way, you end up with a very different spectrum of bugs in your guts initially than when you're born the normal way. So what's your opinion on this? I'm quite interested in that area, actually. And there haven't been a huge amount of studies done comparing caesarean and normal birth. But I think if if at all possible, then a normal birth is actually preferable because, as you say, the baby is sampling the mother's bacteria as it's being born and it's immediately encountering the mother's skin bacteria as well as soon as it's put to the breast and things. And that is definitely an advantage. I think in in the greater scheme of things, whether it has a long-term effect on the health of the child, that's really still up for debate. Fascinating stuff. And now it's time for some questions of our own as we join Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. This week, I felt the earth move. Hi, this is Casey from Berkeley, California, United States. I have a question about earthquakes. It seems like there have been an awful lot of big earthquakes lately. Is there some reason there seem to be a lot at once? For instance, like maybe one of the plates moves, it somehow affects a lot of the other plates too. Or is this just a coincidence? I live very near the Hayward Fault in the San Francisco Bay Area, so should I really start earthquake-proofing my house and lab now? I love the show. There have been many earthquakes across the globe, heavily reported in the media, but is that all that's changed? Hello, this is Gopal Madhubushi. I'm a reader in geotechnical engineering at University of Cambridge. It is true that large earthquakes have happened in close succession recently. For example, two large earthquakes in Christchurch in New Zealand and a very large earthquake in Japan. However, the fault systems in Japan and New Zealand are quite separate and there are no interconnections between them. So the earthquakes occurring together is a pure coincidence. Having said that, the two earthquakes near Christchurch may be interconnected with stress release from one fault affecting the other. If you live in seismic area, it is always better to consider earthquake proofing your house. Earthquakes haven't occurred any more in the last 20 years than they have done over the last century. But we have far more seismograph stations and much better methods of reporting, communication and accessible news. So we're being deluged with more stories about earthquakes, which we know a lot more about. Plus, there are many more people in the world now who can be affected by such earthquakes. But next week, we move from continental drift to genetic drift. My name is Alan, and I'd like to know what the point is of non-coding DNA. Does non-coding DNA actually code for something else? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or forum us with thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. And you can get Question of the Week as a podcast in its own right at thenakedscientist.com slash QOTW or you can look it up on iTunes. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Big thanks to our guest Karen Scott and also to Barry Marshall and to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Lingam, and Ben Vowsler. 
Next week, we are delving underground for a solution to the energy problems of tomorrow with a look at coal gasification. This is a way of turning underground coal seams into syngas, stuff you can burn, but you don't actually have to dig anything up. Plus, a clever new way to scavenge CO2 from waste flue streams and turn it into useful things, including chlorine and bicarbonate of soda. Join us next week to find out more, and if you have any questions on that, you can send them to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.